Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Well, we're about to go into 2010. Does that sound odd to some of you? 2010? I was born in 1943. That just seems like a long time ago. 2010. We got into this study of covenant on Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 where it says, Jesus has obtained for us a more excellent covenant built on better promises. And we, we stop there because how many of us really understand what a covenant relationship is all about? And so we've been working on it for the past several weeks. I'm not doing much review, so those of you that have missed, I hope that each one of these can stand alone. But today we're going to be talking about protection and covenant. Protection and covenant. Fifty-nine times it says in the Scriptures, do not fear. Forty-seven times it says, do not be afraid in those very phrases. Now, there are other phrases that you could even add to that. 106 times, it's made very clear to God's people, do not be afraid. When you think of 2010, nobody's ever lived that year before. You think of maybe the blessings that might come, but you, there's always that fear of the unexpected that begins to crawl up on you. It's like, and this is what I'm trying to say this morning. I believe God's saying in His Word, do not be afraid. That doesn't mean bad things can't happen. It doesn't mean that at all. Just know who's in control. Just know that God is in control. We have seen so far the exchange of robes and how that speaks of oneness in our covenant relationship. There's a divine exchange when we enter into covenant with the Lord Jesus and through the Lord Jesus with God. All that we are for all that He is, and that's not a bad deal. All that He is for all that Wayne is not. He just exchanges robes. He wore our robe of humanity to the cross so that we might wear His robe of righteousness. Well, we, we put on that robe when we are saved. We put on Christ. That's what happens at salvation. Well, we also looked at Ephesians chapter 4 last time. And realize that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is to remind them of what they've already done. They put on the new man. In Colossians 3, it very beautifully describes that. But what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 is, yes, you have put him on, but now we need to daily put him on. That doesn't mean you get saved again. You're already saved. But as you put on Christ, you are to put on Christ. Putting on also means to enter in, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. So, as we have entered in, as we have put on, Paul uses the aorist tense to describe it. And the aorist tense has a punctiliar sense. You say, what does that mean, Wayne? It means, well, you did it one time. You're saved when you receive Jesus. However, punctiliar means you keep doing this, putting him on. You have already put him on, now put him on. Put him on, put him on, put him on. Enter in, enter in, enter in. You see, in each and every circumstance that comes your way. Colossians 2, 6 says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, so walk you in him. 
Nothing's changed. The same way I put him on and was saved, it's the same way I put him on each time in my life by yielding and surrendering to him. There are those who have never put on Christ. They have never entered in. They're not saved. They've never bowed before Christ and received him as their Lord and their Savior. But then there are also those who have already put him on It's salvation, but they're not daily putting him on. And these are the most miserable people you could ever be around. Those who have put on, but are not putting on daily. When we put on Christ by yielding to him and to his word, then others don't see us. They see him, that robe of righteousness, that character that he manifests from within. You see, religion changes you from the outside in, or they try to, but Christianity changes you from the inside out. Well, today we're going to build on that first step of covenant. As they walked in, remember, they would slay an animal, and they would put one half on one side and one half on the other, and it was a gory, sobering thought that the cost of entering into covenant with anyone, and they would walk in, and the first thing they would do would exchange robes, as we saw the last time, and we've been reviewing a bit but then we're going to build on top of that. And they understood how serious this was. In the covenant ritual, once the robes had been exchanged, the next thing they, that, that would be done in this sobering place between these halves of animals is that they would exchange their weapons and they exchange their belts. Now I want you to realize that we're not taking a cultural understanding of cutting covenant and cramming Scripture into it. I want to make sure you understand what we're not doing. There are all kinds of covenants of various forms and fashion, but only when they overlap with Scripture do we pay any attention to that at all. The Scripture is always the final word, and you cannot approach the study of covenant in any other way. What have we done so far? We looked at the covenant in Genesis 15. God himself cut that with Abraham in between the halves of the animals that were slain. And we're now looking at the covenant of Jonathan and David that is brought out in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Whereas the robe signifies the oneness of identity and possessions, mikasa, sukasa, (laughs) the exchange of weapons, of belts, signified the resolve to protect one another. That guy, this, I just love this. When you enter into covenant with someone and somebody comes to fight you, they're not fighting you. They're also fighting your covenant brother. And you're in covenant together to protect each other. Now let me show you this in 1 Samuel 18. Verse 1, it says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. That's the basis of covenant. Verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as himself. He made his covenant. Now look at verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe. That's that oneness of possession that was on him and gave it to David. But look at the second thing he does. With his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Now when the weapons and the belt were exchanged, it was a clear statement of each other's, uh, of the partner's resolve to protect the other. Now, Jonathan was saying, your enemies are now my enemies, How, and, and my enemies are now your enemies. But there's also something else in it, and somewhere along the way, we're going to really be bringing this out. Also, your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. Almost immediately, 
the covenant that Jonathan and David had entered into with one another was threatened immediately. It's tested, as we're going to see in the following verses. Now, what's going to happen? You see, you've got to remember something. Jonathan is the son of the king of Israel named Saul. But he's in covenant with David, who's going to become the anointed king of Israel. It's an interesting scenario that the Scripture brings up. Jonathan's father was Saul. Well, he, his anger, Saul's anger and jealousy of David begins to build in the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel. And you have to say, uh-oh, now what? What's Jonathan going to do? His daddy hates David. But Jonathan's in covenant with David. How does he fulfill his covenant responsibilities? Two things I want us to see today, and that's all. First of all, we want to look at the protective attitude of a covenant partner. When you enter into a relationship, you see this in a marriage, when you enter into a relationship, the husband protects that wife and the wife protects that husband. It's, it's a covenant oneness that they already have, but then or they have it entering into covenant, but, but they also have this covenant protective attitude that's a resolve each of them has. The attitude of covenant is to protect your covenant partner at all costs. You can see the proper response of Jonathan towards David when David was offended by Saul. Now let me get you into the story. Saul was bitterly upset with David, angry, jealous, because God was with David. How do we know that? Because of the successes that he had in battle and particularly the praises that came from the people of Israel. They loved David. David, God was, was with him in everything that he did. In verse 5 of 1 Samuel 18, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. That means he's commander-in-chief. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6, it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, now this is, watch this carefully, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. Uh-oh, here we go. You can start seeing it brooding there in, in, in Saul. Then Saul, verse 8, became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Verse 9, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Oh boy, here we go. This unchecked jealousy begins to fume with inside of Saul. Verses 10 through 12, because of that, Saul began to think of David as his worst mortal enemy. And that could be further from the truth. David was loyal. David, David served him with all of his heart. You see what jealousy does? You see what unchecked anger can do? It causes you to begin to, to feel like somebody is suspicion people, to read in between the lines things that aren't there. Well, he even threw a spear at David thinking he could kill him, but David escaped. Saul removed David from the palace in his presence uh, just to remove the aggravation uh, David was causing him by, be, by being so successful. I mean, he'd get out of here, just go to battle. 
He had already put him in charge as commander-in-chief, as we saw, and now he puts him over a large number of men to lead them in battle. But this only compounded the problem because everywhere David would go, he was a hero, and it put him out in front of the people again, and the people just liked him more and more because of all the victories he was having and how he served the Lord and the king. Well, this caused Saul to dread David. Verse 15 says of 1 Samuel 18, when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. That has that tone of fear in it. He offered his daughter Mirab to David in marriage, probably thinking that if, if, that if he was the son-in-law of the king, he'd become a bigger target to the Philistines and they'd take him out of there. David refused. Because back in those days, you had to have a dowry if you were going to marry someone. And David was a poor man. He just didn't have the money to do that. He refused. But it didn't make much difference. Saul went back on his promise anyway and gave that daughter to someone else. But then Saul, thinking that David would surely be killed in battle, came up with another plan. He had another daughter, Michal. But instead of dowry, he says, listen, if you'll kill a hundred Philistines and prove that to me, then you can marry my second daughter here. Well, that, that sort of lit David's fire because he didn't have any money, but buddy, he could fight. He didn't just kill a hundred Philistines. He kills 200 Philistines. And so therefore ends up marrying this second daughter, Michal. Saul so feared David that he wanted him dead. But remember, Jonathan, his son, is in covenant with David. That's why I'm telling you this story. I want you to see how a covenant partner reacts when he's in covenant with someone. In chapter 19, Saul ordered David to be put to death, but he, he escaped. But guess who protected him, though? And it's very interesting how David got out of that it was because of Jonathan. Jonathan, risking everything, went to his father. And guess what he did? He spoke well of David. said, what are you doing this to him for? He hasn't done anything to you, and Saul relented. This is a covenant partner standing up for his covenant partner and going to his own father, risking everything, and standing up for David. This is what covenant does. It defends the one to whom you're in covenant. I might ask you this question right now. If we're in covenant with Christ, that means as believers we're in covenant with each other. How do you speak of others in the body of Christ to whom you're in covenant? Do you speak well of them? Are you always protecting the one to whom you're in covenant with? As a result of Jonathan speaking well of David, Saul brought him back to the palace. But that didn't last long. Saul was demented, and he was just angry toward David and bent on killing him. Chapter 20, uh, Jonathan again protects David and, and because he's his covenant partner. Now, I'm telling you the story just so that you can understand <clears throat> the relationship we have with God through our, his son, Jesus Christ. How covenant works. How we have a resolve to protect the one to whom we're in covenant. Jonathan did not protect himself. Jonathan protected David even at the risk of his own life. Now, this begins to help us understand. What, what did Jonathan do when Saul uh, offended David, when he went after him? Well, he, he defended David. He, he spoke well of David. He risked his own life in defense of him. Now, let's put this in perspective. That's a story out of the Old Testament. Let's use it as an illustration to help us better understand the covenant that we're in with the Lord Jesus. When we put on the robe of righteousness at salvation, we exchange our life for his life, and we resolve 
listen carefully, to protect him, not ourselves. In fact, I want to share something with you. When we're wearing the robe of righteousness, when we have surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no right to defend or avenge ourselves. That's not what it's all about. We are protecting his reputation at all times, not ours, because our reputation is found in him. No, we always defend his reputation, not our own. Well, here comes the question. Well, wait a minute, Wayne. If I'm always protecting him, who's going to protect me? And that leads us to the other side of the equation. Let's look at the other side of that truth. We see the attitude of protecting the other. When you enter into covenant, there is a bond that is formed. There is a oneness that is formed. But there's also a resolve that flows out of that oneness. I will protect you. And you would say, I will protect you. And we walk together that way. No matter what the cost, I'm going to protect my covenant partner. But he also is going to protect me. In the Old Testament, just as Jonathan defended David because of his covenant with him, God defended Israel. You see, the word covenant pops up many times in the Old Testament. He made a covenant with David. As a result of that, he protected all of Israel. Even when Israel was unfaithful, God protected them. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 5, it says, Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons? How? By a covenant of salt. And that's interesting there. Salt was also a picture of a meal. It, it was something that seasoned. It was something that sealed a, a covenant. It was used many times in Scripture. The offerings many times had to have salt in it. Salt was a sealing of a covenant. Now, normally you would have a meal, like they would have a covenant meal to seal that covenant. But salt was the very same understanding of that. Second Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 7. Even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of Israel, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. What you need to see in this is that God, to whom you're in covenant with, if you're a believer through the Lord Jesus Christ, is a covenant-keeping God. And we need to realize what that means. Just as we're resolved to protect his reputation. How? By surrendering to him and letting him manifest his garment of righteousness in our life. He also is resolved to defend us and to protect us. So do not fear. Do not fear. Whatever's coming, whatever anybody does to you, do not fear. Do not fear. God will protect you. God's on your side and is committed to protect and avenge you. God will avenge his people. Now I hear somebody say, well, that's great, Wayne. You've only shown us a few Old Testament scriptures. Okay, I can buy that. Where is that in the New Testament? I am so glad you asked me that. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Let me just show you. Let me just show you. It's it's, it's that old adage, you want to fight me, buddy? He's me, buddy. (laughs) You pick on a believer, you've just picked on their covenant partner, and that's God himself. And woe be unto the individual that comes against God's people because God God avenges and protects his people. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul, and isn't it interesting, another Saul. He becomes the apostle Paul. But this is in his lost days, just like King Saul of the Old Testament. 
Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Who's this him? at Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. They stoned Stephen to death. And then in verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, if the Apostle Paul could be standing here today, he would look back on that act and he'd say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever done. By persecuting the church, I did not realize what I was doing. I didn't realize who I was really picking on. He just didn't get it. Like Nicodemus, he was a religious man but a lost man. He did not know who he was dealing with. Show me that, Wayne. Thank you. Verse, chapter 9 of Acts. Let's just start reading in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Now, you can just hear the music in the background. Dum de dum dum. He's full of rage. He's gonna get those Christians. And suddenly, uh-oh, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground. He's never seen anything like this. And heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting all those believers? Is that what he said? No. Why are you persecuting me? Now, can't you imagine Saul at that time in his life? Wait a minute, I'm not bothering you. I'm, I'm persecuting them, but they're in covenant with me. You pick on them, you've just picked on me. You don't get it, do you, Saul? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. You know, God has a wonderful way to stop those who are coming against his people. He just converts them. <laughs> oh, no, you missed that. Okay. It's amazing. I mean, here's, here these, here's this man causing havoc to the church, and God turns him inside out and makes him the greatest apostle of the New Testament. He writes half of the New Testament. Well, when we put on his garment, when we're filled with his spirit, walking in the light, John would say, same thing. Yielded to the vine, Jesus would say, same thing. At that point, now listen. We never have a right to defend or avenge ourselves. No. Our resolve is to defend His name, His reputation, His character, and not our own. It's not our job to defend ourselves. It's His job. We're in covenant with each other. We defend Him by allowing Him to manifest His character in us. He will defend us. That doesn't mean bad things won't happen. That doesn't mean the pain will not be there. That does not mean some people may take our lives. But rest assured, judgment is coming. God avenges His own. So many believers still don't get this. The ugly bitterness that they show to someone who is offending them is all a part of the robe of humanity that He wore to the cross in which we exchanged for his robe of righteousness when we got saved. 
We who are in covenant with him are to protect his name no matter what it costs us. We never have a right to defend or avenge ourselves when we're wearing his robe, when we have exchanged robes with him, when we're in a covenant oneness with him. We must understand that people need to see him in us, not us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. What a great church there, untaught in some areas. The Apostle Paul writes them, and he says in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it's only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. And look how it's manifested. The love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Can, can you see what I'm saying? These folks are wearing his robe even in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution. They're not defending themselves. They're defending the one to whom they're in covenant, knowing that God will avenge them. God will defend them. Watch as he continues. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So, that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When's that going to happen, Wayne? When's that going to happen? Now, wait a minute. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. When's the relief going to come, Wayne? And to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand, folks, retribution is not our right as a believer. But, Wayne, you don't know what this person did to me. You don't know what that person did to me. Listen, it doesn't matter. We cannot take up an offense for another person, and we have no right to avenge and defend ourselves. We defend and stand in his reputation. We stand to people when they see us and how we respond. They see Jesus. They don't see us. And this has been the problem with Christianity for centuries. People don't see Jesus. They see mad, angry people and their response when they ought to be seeing Jesus. Let me give you an illustration of this. My daddy died when I was 23, 1966. My mama uh, was pretty much was on her own, totally on her own. I was at school. My, my sister was married in a way. And my mother had never driven a car. <laughs> that was, you had to know my mama. When you see her in heaven, you'll know immediately she's my mama. She hadn't got a She's got, she's got every bone in her body is a funny bone. She just laughs and has the best time. And her mother was the same way. And I don't know where that came in my line. But, but if you knew my mother, she, she got her a 67 Mustang. <laughs> Back in, no, it was 60, 65 Mustang in 1967, I think it was. And she finally learned how to drive. She worked at a, at a place that uh, was a, one of the top motel chains in America, doesn't need, you don't need to know who they are. She was a head housekeeper of all these maids where she worked. And uh, my mama believed that if you're going to get paid for eight hours of work, you ought to work eight hours. I don't know, she's just old school. She not only believed that, she checked the rooms after they cleaned them. You'd love to stay in a room my mama saw over. 
she took a white glove and went down behind the radiator of the rooms. Wouldn't you love that, just to have somebody to do that in this day and time? She made sure they clean. Well, the maids decided they wanted a union. I don't care what you think about unions. This is the way the story goes. And uh, the, they called the heads of the, of the company, and the heads flew in. They said, we don't want a union. No, no, we do not want a union. What can we do to help to solve this situation? And they said, get rid of Mrs. Barber. She was the first one on the list because she made them work eight hours and get paid for eight hours. My mama came to work one day. She'd been there about eight years, and she's just enjoying herself. And she loved the guy that ran the motel as much as anybody, like her son. He was an alcoholic. He was always at bottom's end, but my mama would just try to help him out and share Christ with him. She was a constant witness to him. She walked in one day just singing as she always did, and when she walked in, he wouldn't look her in the face, said to come back to his office. And he went back there and she said, he said, Miss Barber, it's a cold, cruel world. You're fired. Now what was going on at the same time, my mama had chronic lymphatic leukemia, but she was in remission of that at that time. And my mama was stunned. For what? You're fired. Can I go get my stuff? She had a little closet she kept her stuff in. No, they'd already boxed it up and they had it there to put into her car. My mama went home. She didn't call me. She didn't call my sister. And as a result of it, for two weeks, she almost starved herself to death. Her body, uh, immunity and all fell, and pneumonia set in. If you know anybody who's ever had leukemia, you know that pneumonia is the biggest enemy whatsoever. Uh, you, that's the biggest enemy to a person with leukemia. For the next 24 months, she was in the hospital at least 20 months of that 24 months, in and out, sometimes three weeks, sometimes two weeks, sometimes two months. They called me over and over again and said, Wayne, your mama's not going to make it through the night. And I would grab a flight and fly home from Mississippi where we were at the time. And I'd go sit by her side. I wanted to be with her when she went on to be with the Lord. She and I were very close. Well, one day that I flew in, the phone rang. My mama was so weak she couldn't pick up the phone. And so I picked up the phone and put it beside her ear. It was going to help her understand what they were saying. It was a law firm up in New York and said, Mrs. Barber, we have discovered what they did to you and we're going to file suit against them and we want you to be the key witness. We'll be flying in when you get a little better and to get a deposition from you and, and we want you, we'll take care of you and your family for the rest of your life. And I was sitting there, my, her son, the pastor, and I was saying, burn them, mama, burn them. Go for it, mama, go for it. And I heard my mama say, and it just stunned me. She said, I'm sorry, you got the wrong person. And I'm thinking, Mom? They said, are you not Mrs. Barber, Myrtle Barber? She said, well, yes, I am. But she said, I'm a Christian. And I love my Lord Jesus. And I've shared Christ with these people every day that I've come to work. And I don't want anything that I do right now or what happens after me. I don't want anything ever to ruin the witness that I've put before these people. I want them to be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I sit there with that phone. I'm thinking, my mother's lost her mind. She's gone into some kind of, of mental trauma. I hung up the phone and still couldn't believe what my mama had said. I stewed over it for days. I can't believe my mama did that. We need to burn these people. We have a right to defend ourselves. She went on to be with the Lord Jesus not too long after that. And they, she had asked me to do the funeral. 
I was standing there in front of the people wondering what I was going to say. And I looked out, and the last three rows of that congregation that were there were the people that worked at that hotel. And I had the opportunity and the legacy passed on to me to be able to share with them what it meant to have Jesus Christ in your life. I learned from my mama what covenant should have taught me years before. I have no right to take up an offense for another. I have no right to defend or, or, or justify and avenge myself. I defend the one who is in covenant with me, the Lord Jesus. He, he will avenge me. He will defend me. He might even do it by changing the hearts of everybody who's given me the hard time. Do you understand what I'm saying? As we face 2010, we are not there to protect ourselves. We are there to protect His reputation by allowing Him to live in and through us. We are there that people, when they look at us, they see Jesus. They do not see us. If we understood covenant, we would finally get it. We'd stop taking up offenses for other people. We'd stop wearing our feelings on our shoulders. We would start protecting Him by dying to that rotten flesh and letting Jesus be Jesus in our life. We'd start protecting His reputation. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 is an interesting verse. Bless those who persecute you. <laughs> Bless? Who said that? Oh, God said that. Bless and do not curse. Curse meaning not to cuss. <laughs> Some people just, <laughs> I had a friend of mine said he went to a service and he said, cuss it is he who hangs upon a tree. <laughs> curse it is he. It's, he doesn't know the difference in cussing and cursing. Cursing is when you wish evil on the person who's done you harm. Do not curse them, bless them. One of the reasons all this, all this happened to my mother anyway was because she stood for Jesus. Romans 12, 17, never pay evil for evil to anyone. You know, the word anyone in the Greek is kind of like the word magi, if Gregory's in here. Word anyone means anyone, just like magi means magi. <laughs> to anyone, respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far it is that it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own refuge, revenge, brother, but leave room for the wrath of God. 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 For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, starve him. No, he says, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That simply means you'll convict him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This makes no sense to the fleshly mind, none whatsoever, corrupted by sin. It only makes sense when we have on his garment. And then it makes all the sense in the world. God avenges his own people, but we are to defend his name, his character, and his reputation. You can go back to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. You've heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and on and on. It's been said so many times in God's word. But when you put it in perspective of covenant, somehow it begins to make sense. We are here to protect his reputation. Don't worry. He will protect us. Well, years ago, I had a youth guy working with me that was pretty much of a crazy dude. He, 
For instance, he would do crazy things. He called a landscaping company and had them come out and redo a guy's front yard. And the guy did, <laughs> didn't know anything about it. I mean, costly things. He, he took a, a, a commode and cemented it in a guy's driveway one Sunday morning or Saturday night between the house and the wall that separated the driveway. And the guy tried to go to church the next day and couldn't because it was a toilet cemented in the driveway. I mean, this is the kind of stuff he would do. He had gotten everybody, and everybody was scared to death of him because they didn't know what he would do in, to retaliate. I was in Memphis, Tennessee in a cafeteria, and I was just talking and having the best time. Next thing I know, I've got strawberry pie up my nose, in my face, in my hair. He's taken a big piece of strawberry pie and just plastered me and laughing his head off. And everybody laughed their heads off with him. And I stood up and said, Tom, I've learned something, by the way. Those who dish it out usually can't take it. And I stood up and I said, Tom, you don't know when and you don't know where, but vengeance is mine. I will repay. I'll get you back. I waited six weeks. We had a banquet in the church. And uh, it was a roaring 20s type of thing. You know, everybody would put their fake mustaches on, except for John Rupley. He could have just go like he is. But put the fake mustaches on, had their little shoulder holsters on, roaring 20s. And all of them were dressed up like that. I came as a waiter for a specific reason. I had a cart with a tablecloth over it. Underneath that cart, I had a piece of cherry cheesecake that was stacked that high with all kinds of stuff on it. I'm going to get him. Son, I'm going to get him. I served every single person down this one table, all the way down the other, down the next table, all the way up, down the next table. Finally got to him. He had long flowing hair when it wasn't even in style. The young people were, it was in style for them, but not for the adults. But he just didn't realize his age, I guess. And he had that long flowing hair, ladies' man. I love that long hair. I loved it, especially in youth work. I could just grab that sucker and jerk it back. It's just awesome. And I walked up to him and I said, Tom, grabbed the back of his hair, jerked his head back. And I said, do you remember Memphis? And that horrid, oh no, look went on his face. And the next moment, I had cherry cheesecake somewhere close to his brain. I went right up his nose with that stuff. Man, I plastered him. Everybody in the whole place jumped up and gave me a standing ovation. That was not good. He had a shoulder holster on, had a pistol. Thank the Lord, it was blanks. And he started shooting that thing at me, and I was backing up because, you know, a blank can hurt you four feet out. I, I, he just kept shooting and shooting and shooting. And after he had finished all the rounds of that revolver, he continued to pull the trigger, pull the trigger for maybe 25 times. And I'm thinking, dear Lord, thank you there wasn't bullets in that thing. He would have blown my brains out right then. Oh, boy. I left the church not long after that. <laughs> Five years later. I'm on my knees praying, God, is there anything in my life right now that you need to convict me of? And God put this man's name on my heart. And I kept saying, get away from me, devil. Get away. This can't be God. I looked. I didn't have his number, so I called where he used to live. I hoped he had moved. Got his number and called him. And he answered the phone of all things. And I called his first name, and I said, this is Wayne Barber. Have you ever felt it snow over the phone? I mean, it just got ice cold over the phone. And I said, I sinned against you five years ago, and I should never have done it. And I want to ask you to forgive me because I embarrassed you in front of all of those people, and I had no right to do that. 
I couldn't, I didn't know what to expect. And you know what he did? He broke down and began to sob. He said, Wayne, the day I did that to you in Memphis, Tennessee, God began to convict my own heart. And we made restitution with each other over the phone. And two weeks later, I got a letter from him that said he invited me for the wedding of his son. Let me try to get it across one more time. We do not have the right to defend or avenge ourselves when somebody offends us. We protect his reputation at all cost because we're in covenant with him. And if you don't understand covenant built on better promises, you don't seem to understand maybe Christianity. I think the saddest thing about preaching this message is how many times in my life I've defended myself and not him. How many times I've taken up an offense for somebody else and let it become bitterness inside of me. Who are you defending today? In 2010, don't you dare fear. The only way you would fear is if you're going to go into 2010 and defend yourself. Now, you might want to be a little bit more weary because when we have his robe on, He's our covenant partner. And like he said to Saul, who became the apostle Paul, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You're not dealing with them. You're dealing with me. And that's how it works in a covenant relationship. Protection and covenant. That's important for us to understand as we face a year that nobody's ever lived before. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.